Welcome to Cato Audio for November 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Cato's Eric Gomez details the new landscape of nuclear weaponry. New York State Senator Alessandra Biaggi details why she believes police should have to carry individual liability coverage. And San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner discusses the crisis of homelessness in California. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. I am joined by Jeff Singer. He is a physician, a surgeon, and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and Michael Cannon. He's the director of health policy studies at the Cato Institute. Our colleague Ryan Bourne uh, recently said on Twitter, imagine living in the year 2020 and believing and holding up the FDA as an example of how to get things done quickly and well. And uh, in the last year, I think the FDA has taken a lot of hits. Um, I think most of them are pretty well deserved. Uh, You two are taking a look at one specific authority that uh, the the FDA has, and that has to do with prescriptions. Uh, Jeff, why don't you lay out essentially what is the power that the FDA has with regard to prescription drugs that are otherwise safe for consumers? Well, a lot of people probably don't realize, but it's only uh, in the last 50 years or so that the FDA has basically taken control over deciding what drugs people can get uh, over the counter um, and what drugs they require a prescription from a licensed healthcare practitioner for. And uh, as a result, uh, not only is government getting in, involved in this decision process, but politics, of course, as well. Prior to 1951, the right of people to self-medicate was widely recognized and respected. And if people wanted to buy uh, a particular medication, of course, most people would go to an expert like the, a physician and get advice. And sometimes physici- physicians would write on a piece of prescription paper what they recommended. And then they would go to a pharmacist And oftentimes a pharmacist who's also an expert might recommend something different. Uh, And the patient, being an autonomous adult, would make the decision as to whose advice they wanted to follow. Or sometimes a person would just walk into a a drugstore and go up to the pharmacist and say, what do you recommend for this and that? But it was widely recognized that uh, the individual had the right to make these kind of decisions as to what medications they wanted to take. It was, it's part of, of, of the respect for, for patient autonomy. And um, sometimes the drug makers would uh, make a decision that, you know, this drug is kind of complicated. Somebody might use it and have a bad result, and then we're going to get sued. So they would make a decision, and that was a proprietary decision, uh, that if you're going to sell this, a pharmacist, you must get a prescription from a healthcare practitioner in order to sell it. All right. So, uh, Michael Cannon, to you, how did the FDA eventually come to have this authority? So, the Congress passed the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act back in 1938 uh, and uh, said it wasn't going to do anything to infringe on the sort of rights that Jeff is talking about, the right to self-medicate. But what the FDA did was they took the powers that this law gave them and turned them into a de facto power to require prescriptions. 
And you might think that giving the government the power to require consumers to get prescriptions before accessing certain drugs would make consumers safer because let's face it, a lot of drugs are dangerous. A lot of drugs, consumers cannot use themselves safely. So having this requirement in place should make consumers safer. But if you look at the history of how the FDA has used this power, we find all sorts of examples of the FDA requiring prescriptions for drugs that are safe for consumers to use on their own. Uh, I'll give you one really important historical example. Uh, and that is non-sedating antihistamines like Claritin or Zyrtec, okay? These became available over the counter in uh, the United Kingdom as early as 1983, but it took the FDA 19 years after that, until 2002, to make the first of these drugs, Claritin, available over the counter. What that means is, you know, even as other countries were were letting consumers buy these safe drugs over, over the counter, the FDA was requiring prescriptions for them. And not only does that reduce access to these very beneficial drugs, but, uh, and, and by that I mean, you know, instead of just paying, in addition to paying for the drug, you've got to pay for the doctor's appointment. You've got to take time off of work to go to the doctor to get the prescription. There are all sorts of other costs involved that blocked access to these drugs. But as a result of those costs that the government was imposing on people, uh, the government drove people away from these non-sedating antihistamines toward sedating antihistamines like Benadryl, which is diphenhydramine, which it was a, available over the counter and, and that studies have linked to thousands of motor vehicle fatalities. So here's this power that the FDA has. It's supposed to keep consumers safe, but the way the FDA uses that power actually makes consumers less safe in all sorts of ways, including counterintuitive ways like this one, uh, by increasing the likelihood that you know there will be automobile and and, uh, and and even airplane accidents. And those sorts of examples persist today. Look at uh, sumatriptan. Sumatriptan is, uh, it provides relief to migraine sufferers. Uh, countries like Mexico, Sweden, and the United Kingdom all allow consumers to purchase it over the counter. The FDA requires a prescription. Naloxone, it's a life-saving drug that reverses opioid overdoses. It has virtually no side effects. Australia, Canada, France, Italy, all make it available over the counter. The FDA requires a prescription. You can tell similar stories about insulin uh, and uh, oral contraceptives. You know, there are a hundred countries in the world where women can purchase oral contraceptives without a prescription, including communist countries like Cuba and China. But the United States stands with Saudi Arabia among the, the countries that require women to obtain a prescription before purchasing oral contraceptives. The FDA is, uses this power, inevitably uses this power in ways that make consumers less safe, not more safe. Jeff, to you, um, I feel like we maybe have gotten ahead of the, the headline here, which is you guys are proposing a, an end to the government's power to require prescriptions. Uh, my question to you that I think is a pretty reasonable one that a lot of people would have, which is what re what's to replace that? Well, G given especially how complicated drugs have become in the last uh, 50 to 70 years. Well, in fact, what would replace it would be what existed before government got into the into the business. So, uh, as I said earlier, pharmaceutical companies would make a decision as to whether or not they wanted their products sold 
directly to the consumer or they would instruct the pharmacist that they must receive they must only on prescription by a healthcare practitioner which of course would uh, reduce their liability remember these companies are concerned not just about their liability but also about their reputation so in my, in today's world which is you know a lot different than 1951 there's so many more pharmaceuticals out there and many of them are very sophisticated that in in a macro sense, I don't think you'd see a whole lot change. I don't think pharmaceutical companies are going to decide to make chemotherapeutic agents available over the counter, complex cardiac meds. But on the other hand, there are a whole lot of other drugs that have proven safety records, uh, like like the ones Michael just mentioned. I could think of some other ones. Uh, for example, just off the top of my head, diflucan or fluconazole, which is a one-time pill you take for a yeast infection, uh, very commonly prescribed. That should be over the counter. I mean, I could birth control pills, naloxone, in, insulin is over the counter in Canada. Um, and then another thing that, that exists in other countries that doesn't exist in this country, but would be an option available to the drug makers is a, a sort of a middle category of behind the counter or pharmacist only. So for example, let's say the drug maker says, well, you know, this isn't that complicated where we need a them to go to a doctor for a prescription, but we do want somebody kind of as a buffer. So, uh, and and that's the way it is, for example, with insulin in Canada. So if you were in Canada and walked into a pharmacy and said, I'd like to buy some insulin, the pharmacist is likely to ask you, oh, so you have diabetes? And if you said something like, well, I'm pretty sure I do because I have all the same symptoms that my friend has and he has diabetes and he takes this, so I want it too, the pharmacist is likely to say to you, you know what? Um, I don't want to sell it to you. Why don't you go see a doctor first. And if he thinks you have diabetes and come back and see me. So that's another option open to, to the drug companies. Um, but, and, and the other thing is that we don't have to wait years if it turns out that the drug company makes a decision that something that originally classified as prescription only could be over the counter, like in the case of uh, Claritin. And, and then politics is taken out of it as well, because in that Claritin example that Michael was talking about, the company shearing plow that made it, marketed it over the counter in Europe, but convinced the FDA to keep it prescription only in the United States until its patent ran out and it had a new drug to bring on the market. All right. Uh, on that note, uh, Jeff talks about patents, which implies uh, profit opportunities. Uh, so to you, Michael, when we uh, think about the interests that align to either make a drug over the counter versus keeping it as a prescription a drug, which is to say requiring a visit or a consultation with a physician. How do these interests line up and how do they impact the ability of people to access inexpensively and efficiently the kinds of drugs that will help them? So drug pricing is incredibly complicated. There are all sorts of factors pushing drug prices in you know, both directions, up and down. Uh, patents obviously uh, increase drug prices. That's their purpose because you want to allow the pharmaceutical companies that invested in the R&D to discover these new drugs to recoup those costs. And that is what, that's a good example of what might be a necessary uh, a part of drug prices or a, or a, a, um, a justifiable uh, government policy that increases drug prices. The FDA's power to require prescriptions, you know, has an unjustifiable uh, uh, inflationary effect on drug prices. And, and it's sort of interesting because uh, economic theory would tell you that a, since a prescription requirement is effectively a tax on 
prescription drugs, uh, it would tend to reduce the price and reduce the quantity uh, of drugs that people purchase. However, there are these weird interaction effects that prescription requirements have with not just health insurance, but health insurance in a market like ours, where the government does so much to encourage people to purchase excessive insurance. And what ends up happening is that prescription requirements, mandatory prescription requirements, end up increasing drug prices. Uh, and the the example that Jeff gave is is a good one. Sharing Plow back in the early two thousands wanted to keep Claritin prescription only because they knew that they would get higher prices out of the insurance companies that would pay for the drug if it were prescription only than they could get out of consumers who are spending their own money on that drug if it were available over the counter. Now, there's nothing keeping insurance companies from uh, stop. Well, there are actually policies that keep insurance companies from not dropping prescription drugs from their formularies. Uh, but there's nothing that keeps them from uh, covering over-the-counter drugs. Still, you do have uh, uh, some policy and some market realities that lead to this this tendency of insurers to cover prescription drugs. Therefore, the drug companies will fight tooth and nail in many cases to keep this restriction on access to their drugs in place because they know it will make their customers less cost-conscious, uh, more willing to tolerate higher prices because someone else is paying, less willing to switch to a competitor's product, and the drug companies will be able to sell more drugs at higher prices uh, than they would if these drugs were available over the counter. And and so, uh, you know, we, we you have it, examples of this in our paper. One of them is oral contraceptives. The Affordable Care Act requires insurers to cover all FDA-approved prescription contraceptives uh, at 100% with no cost sharing. And what that does is it it makes the consumer completely insensitive to the price, allows the manufacturer to jack up the price because, again, the consumer doesn't care and is very reluctant to switch because someone else is paying the cost. And if you look at the what's happened to prices for hormones and oral contraceptives since that mandate took effect, they have essentially doubled. They had been falling relative to inflation, like the prices of other uh, or I should say like the prices of non-prescription drugs. They had been falling relative to inflation. Uh, as soon as the ACA mandated full coverage of these drugs, the price began to skyrocket and has now doubled. And if the FDA moved oral contraceptives from prescription only to over-the-counter status, that would mean the ACA would no longer require insurers to cover them. Uh, and some insurers would stop covering them and the and the the consumers would become much more cost conscious and the price of these drugs would fall just like the price of claritin and other non-sedating antihistamines have fallen uh, like the price for prilosec fell when it became available over the counter and so forth uh so so this is really as i said at the outset and a, a government policy that unjustifiably has an inflationary effect on drug prices by the way there are still women who don't have insurance and when they get a prescription now for birth control pills from their physician, they're paying a whole lot more money. And many of them may decide to forego using oral contraceptives because it's just too unaffordable. And that's because of that. When we think about the interests that may be aligned on one side or another in terms of the FDA having this authority, for any group of people who would benefit from a drug going over the counter or otherwise the FDA simply not having this authority, uh, right now, 
that's a heck of a lot of work for those individuals to do in order to change FDA policy. And every group that would benefit from any individual drug going over the counter would have to go engage in that exact same process of uh, lobbying or fighting to have that drug removed. That's right. The FDA typically waits for someone to come to the FDA and say, please uh, move this drug from prescription only to over-the-counter status. Usually, it's the drug manufacturer. If it happens at all, it's the drug manufacturer that makes that plea. In some cases, it could be insurance companies. Claritin is an example where WellPoint, the California insurance company, went to the FDA and said, please make Claritin available over-the-counter. And as we mentioned, Sharing Plow fought WellPoint to keep Claritin prescription only. In the example of uh, Plan B emergency contraception, there are a lot of patient groups and provider groups who said, look, this is a very safe drug that uh, that should be available over the counter without restriction. Uh, and, uh, and the FDA, uh, and that process took 12 years p- before a federal court finally forced the FDA to lift all restrictions on the uh, on over-the-counter sales of uh, of Plan B emergency contraception, and, and the judge that did that, by the way, really uh, tore into both the Bush and Obama administrations for uh, delaying unrestricted access to Plan B for twelve years for purely political reasons. But usually, th- those those two examples are still the exception. Usually, the FDA waits for the manufacturer to petition it for to move a drug to over-the-counter status, and they often have to wait for a long time. Uh, another example we've mentioned was is naloxone. Uh, the manufacturer of naloxone uh, opposes, uh, I should say, of, of Narcan, which is the uh, nasal inhaler version of naloxone. That uh, the manufacturer of Narcan opposes moving that drug to over-the-counter status so much that even though the FDA has said, you know, they took the unusual step of saying to the manufacturer, look, we think this can be moved over-the-counter. Here's the label. We've written it for you. Just submit it back to us and we'll move it to over-the-counter. The manufacturer refuses to do so. And when we had an event on Capitol Hill where Jeff Singer uh, spoke and uh, Cato Adjunct Scholar, Professor David Hyman spoke about the importance of moving naloxone to over-the-counter status. When we were promoting that event, before it even happened, four different Cato employees uh, were approached by four different lobbyists for the manufacturer of Narcan to say, hey, you know what? We want to let us know that they were opposed to the idea of moving uh, Narcan to over-the-counter status. And uh, and I think they tried to talk us out of doing the event. We we did it anyway, and they showed up and try and you know argued with us in the hallway. <laughs> it's true. Anything to add to that, Jeff? No, it's just interesting because afterwards, one of the representatives wanted to explain to me how it actually saves people money to have naloxone prescription only, and I was really interested to hear that explanation. And he said, "Well, if it's prescription only." Then it's the there's usually a minimal copay to the to the insured patient, whereas if it's over the counter, they might pay right now a retail price which is a hundred and forty five dollars. And I said the the problem is most of these people who are dying of overdoses who are using heroin or whatever on the street don't have their insurance cards with them, and they don't really know what their copay is because they don't have insurance. So that's really good for the people who have insurance most of whom don't even need the Narcan, 
But what about what about the target population we're aiming this at? What stands out to me about what that lobbyist said about uh, cost sharing is that that lobbyist was implicitly saying when Narcan is prescription only and the consumer is only facing this tiny co-payment, this tiny uh, amount of the price, we can charge the insurance companies whenever we want. We can charge these sky high prices. Uh, and when he was saying that uh, that if it weren't prescription only, it weren't covered by insurance, the patient would face the full price. The obvious retort there is, well, okay, then just lower your price from one hundred and forty dollars to whatever marginal cost is, and and the, the the consumer will be able to afford it. They absolutely do not want to do that. That this lobbyist was essentially admitting in lobbyist speak uh, that that the manufacturer just does not want to reduce the price. They don't want cost-conscious consumers because they know what that does to drug prices. Michael, as you noted earlier, uh, often it is the drug manufacturer that is a the the company that is requesting that a drug be placed over the counter. And my immediate thought is, well, that tells me that the drug company believes that there's no longer profit in uh, maintaining that drug as a prescription only drug. Is that fair? Yeah, that is. You know, it's it's it is, as I said, it is rare that they will petition to move one of their own drugs from prescription only to over the counter status, uh, but they they do that. And Sharing Plow did that as soon as the patent ran out on Claritin, um, and other drug companies have done that because the when a drug is on patent, uh, consumers get very used to the brand name of that drug, and then uh, when the manufacturer wants to introduce a new drug uh, and have that drug dominate the uh, the prescription only market. They might move their formerly prescription drug to the over the counter market and use that brand name to try to gobble up the most market share they can in the over the counter market. That's what Sharing Cloud did with Claritin, and um, and so there are all sorts of games that pharmaceutical companies play with both the patent system and the uh, the FDA's prescription requirement system. Uh, Jeff, what evidence do we have about uh, the FDA's role uh, as setting as the gatekeeper here in terms of uh, either avoidable deaths or uh, other consequences of people being unable to access potentially helpful drugs? There are two features uh, of FDA regulation. One is called drug lag and the other is called drug loss. Um, this actually isn't directly related to the prescription versus OTC status. This has to do with just approval process for the FDA. Uh, and now, since the 60s, the, the approval process has not just required safety, but proof that it works for a specific uh, condition. It doesn't have to, once it's approved for that condition, you could use it for anything you want. So that adds sometimes up to seven, eight years to the to already long approval process. And I think the latest numbers we have is it also adds it cost of over three over three billion dollars to bring the average drug to market. So in all this time that people are waiting for to have access to a drug in the United States, this drug might be available elsewhere. So when you think about how many lives may have been lost or just how much suffering may have gone on until finally that pa a patient is permitted to use this. And, and on top of that, the, 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 all of this cost of bringing a new drug to market leads to uh, dis discouraging 
uh, pharmaceutical companies from investing in certain other drugs because they only have a limited number of resources. And what drugs did they not invest in doing research in that therefore won't be available to people in need because of all these added cost burdens to bringing a, a drug to market that result from the FDA approval process? And we get into that in our paper. One other question, and I think we'll we'll close uh, with this. How careful are consumers when it comes to deciding what drugs that to take or not take? And is the prescription process, the mandatory prescription process for a lot of these drugs, ultimately, is that helpful uh, in terms of people's conscientiousness with what they put into their bodies? Michael? So Jeff and I make a pretty bold claim, which is that society would be better off, consumers would be safer, uh, and we would improve public health if we took this power away from the FDA entirely. One of the things that gives us confidence that that's the right approach is a series of studies that an economist named Sam Peltzman did uh, that tried to figure out, okay, on a macro level, what kind of effect does it have on health when we give the government the power to decide what drugs are prescription only and what drugs can be over the counter? And he found some pretty surprising things. He found, when he looked at the period before and after the FDA began imposing prescription requirements, he found that uh, once the FDA began doing that, deaths from accidental or suicidal poisonings didn't fall. They actually increased by 50 to 100% once you're controlled for various things. He found that there's uh, across countries, there's no statistically significant difference. This is a quote, no statistically significant difference in infectious disease mortality between countries that enforce prescription requirements for antibiotics and those that do not. And finally, he found that, again, looking at, looking at across countries, he found uh, that, quote, poisoning mortality is higher, all else remaining the same, in countries that enforce prescription regulation. Now, how could this be? How could it be that when the government makes it harder for consumers to access dangerous drugs, puts this obstacle in the way that you have to get a doctor's permission, that poisonings could go up, that more that mortality could be higher. And he comes up with what I think is a pretty compelling answer, which is that consumers are naturally pretty cautious when they're uh, buying medicines themselves over the counter because they recognize they're not experts. They look at the labels. They even seek out advice uh, from, from physicians. But when you require consumers to go to a physician, they more often sort of surrender that decision uh, and, and, uh, and surrender their caution, uh, uh, assuming that the physician is going to be making uh, cautious decisions on their behalf. And, and they end up but they but because physicians don't physicians prescribe riskier drugs, consumers end up uh, taking more risky drugs than they did when they were making the decisions or, or when the government wasn't forcing them to consult with a physician. And there's evidence that backs this up. I mean, in 2006, there's a study of women in Seattle who self-screened for contraindications to oral contraceptives, and the researchers compared uh, the assessments they made to the assessments that OBGYNs made for the same women and found that the women made more cautious assessments than the OBGYNs did, so that fewer women, when they were making this decision for themselves, would have opted to use oral contraception than would have rendered that decision to the physician. And and so and, and so all the evidence that we have actually points to the fact that consumers are pretty cautious. You know, they make mistakes, but overall they're more cautious when 
we leave them to make this, these decisions themselves and less cautious when we force them to get a physician's uh, permission before consuming drugs. And, uh, and you know, the, all, all the evidence that's available bears that out. I, as a clinician, I see that in my own practice. I'll have a lot of patients when I'm taking a history and ask them, so what medication are you taking for your high blood pressure or, or for your diabetes or whatever? Lots of times the patients will say, I don't know, it's, a, it's kind of a blue and white pill that my doctor gave me. And then they, they just trust the doctor. And if you look historically, um, most people are aware of the sulfonilamide tragedy where sulfonilamide, the first antibiotic, uh, was finally made available in elixir form. And the elixir, unfortunately, was made with diethylene glycol, which was poisonous. So 105 people died, 35, four of whom were children. Well, and that's what led to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act being passed in the first place in 1938. But 95% of the people who took sulfonilamide were prescribed it by the doctor. And looking back, some of these doctors are prescribing sulfonilamide for things that had nothing to do with infections. They just thought it was a good idea to take it. And people were just obeying them. Or the famous thalidomide scare scandal in 1962, where thalidomide was being prescribed to women for morning sickness, and it was causing these hor horrific birth defects. Uh, 624 pregnant women were prescribed this in the United States. At the time, it was listed as an experimental drug. It wasn't approved yet. The doctors weren't telling them, by the way, this is an experimental drug. Because, and do you, are you sure you want to take it? They were just prescribing it, and people were, were doing that. There's a tendency for people to kind of surrender to the expert, and whatever the expert says must be right. And I see that in my own practice. All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. The paper is Drug Reformation and Government's Power to Require Prescriptions. The authors, Jeffrey A. Singer and Michael F. Cannon. It's available now at Cato.org. What drives some countries to work against the will of basically the rest of the world to develop and hold on to nuclear weapons? As North Korea has unveiled new delivery systems for weaponry, it's worth taking stock of the state of play with respect to nuclear weapons. Cato's Eric Gomez spoke with me for the Cato Daily Podcast. Cato Unbound is a, a monthly product of the Cato Institute in which uh, many scholars get together and uh, debate one particular uh, question for a month, and and this month you had the you took the lead uh, on Cato's behalf, and the question is about nuclear weapons. Like in, in the middle of a pandemic, a presidential election, a uh, nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera. It uh, you almost forget that nuclear weapons are actually the thing that, for the better part of the the twentieth century. And into the 21st century, really ought to have more of our attention than it does. So, what was your take with respect to your essay about what we should know today about nuclear weapons? So, the prompt for that essay was, you know, what is the most important thing that uh, American citizens should know about this? And so, with a prompt like that. And I have some pretty deep specialized knowledge in this. So it was kind of hard to figure out how to package it. But the way I ended up going is that there's this interesting moment in nuclear policy where you have some very big transformative things happening, both within the United States and around the world regarding nuclear weapons. And you also have the U.S. making a lot of decisions about 
what is our nuclear arsenal going to look like for the next 50 plus years? And all of this is happening kind of at the same time. And what I would hope is that given the sort of enormity of the changes and the longevity of U.S. policy decisions that are going to be made in the next few years, that this is a really good time to talk about first order questions instead of second order. And I think a lot of the debate in the United States is over the second order questions. How many missiles do we need? How many uh, warheads do we need? And, and it's very sort of like tinkering. But the first order questions are like, and what I try to answer or get at in my paper is, what is the role of weapons in U.S. foreign policy, nuclear weapons in U.S. foreign policy? And are we asking them to do too much? Which I think is is something a bit more fundamental and depending on how you answer that question has really big consequences for how you structure what you want to build and buy over the next several decades. And unfortunately, I don't think those types of questioning is is really happening right now. So that's why I tried to draw attention to it. Yeah, it seems like a, an obvious thing to to say that you know what the purpose of nuclear weapons are. But, uh, you know, one of the key purposes of nuclear weapons is so you don't have to use them. Right. So as we understand the role that nuclear weapons play today, what's changed from you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s to today about uh, the role that nuclear weapons play in sort of fostering this play nice <laughs> world that that we that we hope that that's the role that they play. But but uh, what's changed? So I think that. The two big things are changes in the structure of power in the world and also uh, changes in technology, specifically non-nuclear technology that can be used to do things that previously you would only use a nuclear weapon for. So we'll start there because that's I, I like that a lot. Um, so in the past, in the Cold War, if you wanted to go after an enemy's nuclear forces, the only real way to do it was to use your own because you didn't have enough precision in the conventional side. You didn't have enough of that accuracy to reliably target some of these things, and you had to use a nuke. However, thanks to changes in sensing capabilities, precision strike, that more and more countries have these types of weapons, we can do some of those things with conventional systems now. The United States could target a Russian or a Chinese nuclear site, not all of them, but some of them, with a conventional weapon that previously you'd have to cross the nuclear threshold to do. And that changes how conflict works, right? If we can credibly hold a country's nuclear forces at risk, then if they have a, a nuclear doctrine of saying, all right, you know, we'll wait for a first strike before we reply, maybe they can't have that luxury anymore. And the United States can do this in a way to other countries that they can't really do to us because we're stationed around the world and we have you know a large military presence in Europe and in Asia right on the doorsteps of the great powers. So that's one area where things get a little dicey and things have changed. The other area is that you have a situation in the world where the United States sees a lot more threats and those threats are coming from great powers again. So you had you know US Soviet competition in the Cold War, um, then Soviet Union collapses, a long period of U.S. dominance, and now U.S. dominance is going away. And I think there's a natural tendency 
to say, oh no, if that dominance is going away, then we need to sort of revert our nuclear thinking and, and think about how nuclear weapons can apply to more problems and use them as this kind of almost like an equalizer of sorts uh, or, or some way to hold on to that position. And I think there's a lot of danger there because of this other stuff I talked about earlier about new technology changing the way that conventional conflict could activate nuclear responses. And it's a pretty, I know that I, I think that's all I'll say about it here um, and encourage the listeners to like read the essay and read some other stuff that's, that's come out about this topic. But it's, it's a world where the ability of nuclear weapons to actually prevent nuclear first strikes or, or strikes that um, could affect nuclear targets is kind of eroding. And if the United States wants to avoid it, then adding more nukes like the Trump administration wants to do might not actually prevent it because the, the pressure point isn't the nuclear weapons themselves. It's this other technology that's coming out and countries are trying to figure out what do I do with it? So there is what is known by academics based on years of research of the role that nuclear weapons have played. How quickly does that kind of knowledge uh, filter to people who are actually in charge of making these kinds of decisions and structuring negotiations, discussions, treaties with uh, other countries, or does it does that actually get to them? Is there is the pu public policy ultimately based on something different? I really, really hope that some of it gets to them, but this is a question that has bedeviled sort of academic analysts for a very long time. The United States. I don't think is very comfortable with the idea of being deterred. We like the term deterrence as it applies for us preventing anyone else from doing anything bad. But when it comes to us not being able to have absolute freedom of action, especially in the military space, we don't like that. And so you can say, you can create these academic theories about how uh, like the condition of mutual assured destruction can be stabilizing because both sides are afraid to do a nuclear thing for fear of dying themselves. And that's sort of good at a, at an intellectual level. But if you tell that to a president, they're probably going to be like, well, I don't want to be in this, in this situation. Right. And I want to try and do whatever I can to get the advantage I want. Um, there is, I think there is some evidence that when the cold war ended, the, the administrations that came after that, the Bush 41, Clinton, Bush 43, and Obama, all of them did things to try and reduce the size of the U.S. arsenal, the, the nuclear arsenal, um, and also try and decrease the role that nuclear weapons played in U.S. foreign policy because, because they saw that change in the world, right? The Soviet Union was no longer a huge threat. Russia was more of a cooperative partner. Uh, to reduce nuclear danger because they had all this like loose material after the Soviet Union collapsed and there was a lot of good cooperation. And that was mirroring a lot of, I think, academic sort of thinking at the time. But it's a very difficult business to actually tell what gets through to them and what doesn't. Broadly speaking, uh, if you've watched the, the last two decades of uh, reactions to countries that are close to getting nuclear weapons or countries that are seeking nuclear weapons or countries that have achieved uh, a nuclear weapon and a delivery system. 
if you're a smaller country that is maybe not very popular, maybe you're a tyrant, uh, and you see what's happened to countries like Libya and Iran that have been seeking nuclear weapons and were uh, ultimately talked out of it, the lesson you might take is, well, I just better get some nuclear weapons. <laughs> yeah, they're the the ultimate guarantor of regime survival. And I think that if, if the U.S. wants to deal with this problem, one of the things that we're going to have to do is a bit of soul searching about what role has our foreign policy played in encouraging proliferation. So often the U.S. says like, oh, you know, our foreign policy prevents countries from seeking the bomb um, because we can have this big, you know, security umbrella over so many people. And that's true for allies. Like we've been, do we've been doing a great job of preventing uh, democratic allies from getting nuclear weapons. Haven't been doing a great job of preventing, you know, countries like Pakistan or North Korea or, or Iran from getting them. And the reason we've been good at getting allies not to have nuclear weapons is like, we got you. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, we, you know, we use the alliance system as a tool for non-proliferation, which I think is, is fine and good, right? I, I think the, you know, the fewer nuclear weapons in the world, the better. Um, but there's also the, the flip side of that coin is, especially after 9-11, when the U.S. Is, goes on this kind of axis of evil bent and starts toppling tr or trying to topple countries we don't like left and right, then nuclear weapons look attractive. And it's also very hard for us. I think the, the big tragedy of the Iran case is that the threat of conflict in the early 2000s, the Obama administration gets to the Iran nuclear deal, which even though it doesn't solve every single problem the U.S. has with Iran, it solves the nuclear one. And then Trump leaves it. And now I think that's going to raise a lot of questions like for the North Koreans. If the North Koreans wanted to have a deal with the United States over their nukes, what's to stop a future president from saying, eh, I don't really like that anymore. And, and so I think that the Trump administration's decision to try and leave the Iran deal and kill it is going to be a huge step backward for U.S. efforts to prevent other countries from getting nuclear weapons. Uh, but you also see in the Bush administration, through the early part of the Obama administration, this incredible work being done to convince Libya not to continue its pursuit of nuclear weapons. And then you see that regime toppled, due in no small part to the actions of the U.S. military under a different administration. Yeah. And this is what the North Koreans talk about when they worry about the so-called Libya model, right? It's uh, it's not the model of, hey, surrender your nukes and everything will be fine. It's the model of, yeah, but wait a little bit, right? Surrender your nukes. And then uh, when when the U.S. sees an opportunity, they'll they'll destroy your regime. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think part of this is just and, and part of this might change as, as this power shift in international in the international world occurs and the U.S. starts caring more about, you know, what the Chinese are doing. One thing about the Cold War, I think that was somewhat positive, is that it it sort of whetted the U.S. appetite for for certain stupid things. We did plenty of stupid things in the Cold War, but there were ways that which, if we did a stupid thing in the wrong place, it could really come back to hurt us. And I think that limiting factor hasn't really been in play since the Soviet Union went away, but it might start coming back with China. And so 
even though I think the this like competitive turn towards China might have its own problems, one potential silver lining of it is the the U.S. ability to kind of do stupid stuff around the world and sort of get off with the cost or get off with the costs relatively scot free might not be there anymore, and it might enforce some smarter decision making in Washington. But that remains to be seen. Eric Gomez directs defense policy studies at the Cato Institute. Should cops carry personal liability coverage? There are good reasons why taxpayers shouldn't be on the hook for cases of individual police misconduct and the massive payouts that follow. And treating cops as professionals means demanding professional behavior. Alessandra Biaggi is a Democratic state senator in New York. We spoke in September. What has stymied police reform, in your view? The strong power of police unions and the lack of political courage to do the right thing because of that power, to be honest. I think that this is not something that's just happening in the state of New York. I think it's happening across the entire country, but it's a, it seems to be especially true in New York State and, and New York City, where the heads of the police unions and the police unions generally have actually just amassed more and more power over the years, and elected officials in power are, are afraid of them and really don't want to make them angry or make them upset or do anything, I believe, that would take away the the support of the police union for that specific elected official. Obviously, the tides have shifted significantly, meaning that I think that there's more space for anybody who would have maybe felt uncomfortable. But here's the thing. There's a lot of powerful interests in government and in politics. And I think that the moment we're in and, and the moment that we're leading into is one where doesn't matter how powerful the group of people or the organization that you're fighting against is. It's about doing the right thing, the ethical thing, the moral thing, regardless of whether you lose your seat. And we could talk more about that, but I, that is what I have seen to be really like the, the cancer of politics. What is the relationship between people's sense of public safety. You represent the Bronx and Westchester. Uh, what is the sense that of people's, of the relationship between safety and how much policing costs them? It's a really good question. Um, I think it's shifting, but I will say it, it, it does depend which neighborhood you ask. I think that if I look at the district I represent, which is District 34, which covers, as you mentioned, parts of Westchester County and the Bronx, although in Westchester, it's a very small portion. It's just Pelham and Mount Vernon. Um, and then in the Bronx, it's a massive uh, district from Riverdale in the northwest all the way down to Hunts Point, including Rikers Island. Um, and you do see a difference of how police officers are policing and their presence depending upon what area of the Bronx and Westchester you're in. in I'll just give a very um, stark example. In Pelham, there are very few police officers driving around the street on a regular basis. In fact, you probably will see one maybe once every five days. I mean, I rarely see a police officer or a car. Um, if I 
um, in the Southeast Bronx, like Soundview or Castle Hill area. I mean, you really cannot go one block or two or three without seeing um, a police car. Now, to answer your question, how does it relate to how people's understanding or feeling of safety? Uh, I think, again, it depends. I know and and we know that there is a direct correlation between um, heavy police presence and and also uh, violence. Um, of course, we know as well that uh, violence is not just about over-policing. It's also about under-investing in communities and not thinking about how we deal with and address issues like poverty um, and systemic racism. And so there's much more going on there. But I do think that um, overall, a majority of the people that I represent um, have made it very clear in their communications with me and my office and my team um, that they don't want over-policing. They don't want um, a police officer at every corner or at every block or responding to a mental health crisis, right? I mean, there's a very clear correlation, um, especially between our communities of color and their feeling of really no place is safe for them, especially when police are present. Um, and as And also, I think, the very real fact that when um, a person of color is feeling unsafe or feeling like there's an issue going on around them or or something that they might need help with de-escalating, the first thought is not to call 911 because that's actually something that will create more of a problem or more violence or lead to someone dying. And so that I think is really at the crux of the issue. And I I am keenly aware of it. Um, and that is really honestly why, just to draw the through line here, why I am a strong proponent of defunding the police um, and, and taking resources away from the NYPD that should be going into things like mental health services and social services and other ways in which we can actually get at the crux of a lot of the issues that our communities are facing. Your proposal would do what exactly? Okay, so this is what we're calling or what I'm calling the police liability insurance bill. And the bill has two key elements to it. The first is that it removes police officers from indemnity provisions in our state law that hold an officer harmless, which basically mean, holding a harmless is just a legal term for no responsibility, no accountability um, in, in any legal judgment um, that's filed in a state or federal court. And then the second component of it is that it would require all officers to hold personal liability insurance. And so right now, police officers are essentially shielded from personal financial responsibility when they are sued in a state or federal court um, because of indemnity provisions in our state law. So they are shielded from personal responsibility because of indemnity provisions that provide them this protection. And so this bill will remove officers from those provisions of our state law so that these officers will be responsible for paying out any settlement or judgment, right? In order to recover those costs, um, the legislation requires every single officer, including state and local law enforcement, to have personal liability insurance to cover any claims that are 
made against them for acts or omissions that occur during any period of time that the officer is in the performance of their duties within the scope of employment. Um, municipal or state entities that employ them will also be required to cover the base rate of the policy. Um, but the whole point of this is that officers who repeatedly engage in misconduct are the ones who may see their rates go up, right? Until it becomes cost prohibitive, forcing officers hopefully to change their behaviors or to just leave the field of law enforcement altogether, right? Because when you make something cost prohibitive, th that is a deterrent, hopefully, for the behavior that we're seeing. And so the idea is really to create this financial disincentive so that police misconduct no longer happens because even though we are putting in place and passing more laws now probably than ever in the state of New York to increase accountability and transparency for police misconduct. We're not, we're not close to coming to a place where we've completely transformed the profession. Let's talk about the relationship between the cost of policing and the benefits of policing mm -hmm. here, because I think that your proposal speaks to that pretty clearly. I can imagine mm -hmm. that a local mayor or a local city council might look at your proposal and think, boy, this could really save us a lot of money sure. in terms of police misconduct payouts. Yes. Like, obviously, I can imagine police unions and some individual departments saying, no, this is terrible. Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes to payouts that cities must engage in when someone, when a police officer engages in misconduct and is held responsible for that misconduct, that doesn't necessarily come out of a police budget. That's exactly right. So just to put this into perspective in terms of the numbers, okay, every single year, cities across the entire state of New York use and, and spend hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars to cover claims of misconduct that are made against police officers. And so those claims include things like excessive use of force or the violation of a New Yorker's civil rights. Um, and again, this is taxpayer dollars used to cover claims of those specific types of misconduct and others. Um, between July 2017 and July and June of 2018, the New York City um, Comptroller actually put out a report that New York City alone, right? This is one city amongst many in the state of New York. New York City paid out $230 million in roughly 6,500 cases of police misconduct. That I, I pause there because that number is staggering and it's especially staggering right now when we are seeing uh, an incredible deficit in our budget in the state of New York. And we're watching as things like uh, school budgets get cut, um, social services are getting cut, transportation which is a social justice issue as well, um, is getting cut. And so while, you know, you have taxpayers bailing out, essentially, law enforcement who are engaging in misconduct, um, those officers, in, in addition to being bailed out, are also evading any kind of meaningful accountability. And so the repeal of the indemnity provision in the state law 
that hold these these law enforce, enforcement officers harmless um, in any lawsuits against them and requires um, and, and now will require them to carry personal liability insurance at least provides um, a layer of financial consequence that will that they will feel more in, more directly and we know that any time that you want to change behavior, one of the ways you, of course, can do that is by um, affecting someone's financial consequences and and really hitting them in the pocket. And, you know, one of the things that I heard from the police union in, in the very beginning of when I had introduced this bill was that. I wanted to actually eliminate police officers, which can kind of signal to you something quite interesting if you really think about it, which is if we're requiring officers to carry personal liability insurance, why would that be my intention to want to eliminate police, right? One logical conclusion could be that um, perhaps that's uh, a telling sign that there are so many police officers engaging in misconduct that perhaps there wouldn't be anyone who would be covered by personal liability insurance. But we won't go to that point. The point I really want to make is that this this specific issue is actually not a new one. Um, there are many nurses and hairdressers, barbers, um, lawyers, and doctors who hold some form of personal liability insurance. And so what this is really about at the end of the day is holding these officers to the highest standards of integrity, um, especially because they are responsible for the protection of lives. That is the oath that they take when they become officers. And so a violation of that oath should hold concrete consequences. And this is, this is again, only one of the ways that we can continue to hold them accountable. But the fact that I would go to get my haircut and my hairdresser would have insurance and that the police officer carrying a gun wouldn't have, have to hold personal liability insurance is a very disturbing thought to hold in our minds. And it's quite discordant, but it again shows us, I think, um, just how powerful, again, the unions have been in shielding the officers from meaningful accountability. I can actually imagine that if if a law like this were on the books, that police unions might find at some point, you know, this isn't so bad. I believe that. I think that a reasonable person could probably lead to that conclusion. And when I have been doing outreach to whether it's advocacy groups, insurance companies, the Colorado representatives who have been doing this work as well, um, what we're seeing is that once the actual issue is explained and a meaningful conversation happens around the issue, not one where it's conversation through a tweet or through um, a, a, a news clip that really does more harm than um, does any type of, of healing, which is really what we need in this specific area at the moment. What we're seeing is that there is an understanding that and, and a real agreement that police commissioners and, and police captains and unions do want the very best to wear a police badge and do reject the officers who are really unwilling to accept the responsibility and accountability for the protection of human life. I also think that that extends to even someone, perhaps an elected official, who historically has been unapologetic about police misconduct um, and is on a certain side of the aisle. And we see this, by the way, I don't want to just single out Republicans. We do see this 
kind of uh, lack of accountability for police and law enforcement um, who have engaged in misconduct on both sides of the aisle. We see elected officials protect that behavior, um, whether they're a Democrat or a Republican. And that's why this is such a uh, massive problem. Um, but I think ultimately, when we do have these meaningful conversations, what it is proving and, and reiterating and reminding everybody is that being a police officer is not a right. It is a privilege. And so if you abuse that privilege, just like if you abuse the privilege of having a driver's license, you no longer get to drive a car. You are abusing the privilege of being a police officer. Although in a very philosophical sense, I could agree that we could argue um, about the term privilege and, and its application to policing, but that's another conversation I think for a different day. But I want to just be very candid about that. Um, if you abuse that privilege, then you should no longer be a police officer, right? So, I mean, there's more we can say about that, but I think that to your point, reasonable people who are actually thinking about what this bill is doing and what this issue is all about and the history of policing and truly actually are coming to this conversation committed to an understanding will conclude that it's actually not such a not such an off the wall idea. It's actually quite reasonable. Alessandra Biaggi is a Democratic state senator in New York. Homelessness isn't just a problem of a lack of housing. It's also a mental health issue. Republican Kevin Faulkner is the mayor of San Diego. At the Cato Institute's Conference on Housing and Homelessness in California, he detailed his city's efforts to tackle homelessness there. And I will tell you, for the, those of you that may have heard me talk on this topic before, uh, you've heard me say that homelessness is not merely an issue in California. It is the issue. Uh, and I'm a strong believer that we need to redo our homeless system because it's broken in our state. Um, and I think, you know, we've got a lot of studies that have been done on it, but, but you don't need to see a study uh, when you see tent encampments, unconscious folks on the sidewalk, open drug use, overwhelmed emergency rooms, uh, and so much more. And I'm, that's why I'm so happy to come to today's forum because it's really you know, time to be honest about why more and more people are living on the street, uh, but I think most importantly, solutions to fix it. Um, San Diego County was one of the only places in the state where homelessness has decreased two years in a row. Uh, went down by 6% in 2019 and 5% uh, in 2020. Yet, we still have over 2,000 folks uh, on our streets in the city. So while we've made some good progress, um, it's incredibly important that we double down on those efforts. Um, so I'm looking forward to just in about the 10 to 12 minutes I have to share my thoughts and, and insights on what we've been doing here in the eighth largest city in the country uh, to address it head on. Um, and I would say that you know, when it comes to conventional wisdom about theories on how to solve homelessness have proven to be largely ineffective for the scope and the scale of our crisis here in California. Adrian, I think, just got to that very effectively. Um, you know, I've seen it firsthand as mayor. 
And I remember back to when San Diego was going through a hepatitis A crisis on our streets over four years ago. That was a system that showed we needed to do things differently. Uh, lives were at stake. Um, we used to try to pursue universal consensus on where to put homeless services and where to build housing, all while homelessness continued to rise. Um, some would say that they support more homeless services. They just want them somewhere else. Uh, and so as I made that commitment to San Diegans, I said, those days are over. Uh, we've since taken dramatic steps, not about universal consensus, it's about action and results to get people into safe and sanitary environments. Um, so I'll touch on a couple of these examples from the past few years, and then a little bit about how COVID-19 uh, has made some changes to our system that I think have been actually very positive as we look at to, to the future of, of how we're getting people off the streets uh, for good. There's a lot of focus uh, always, unfortunately, on the only focus is housing, is only housing to solve homelessness. Um, and housing is incredibly uh, important. The reality is, and we just heard this a little bit, is it can take years to build one home, let alone the 151,000 for every homeless individual on the streets in California. The housing only ideology, if you will, I strongly believe ignores that tens of thousands of Californians aren't homeless just because they lost their home. They're homeless because they're also losing their fight with mental illness or addiction. And so until we get the statewide housing reforms uh, that we desperately need, and then I continue to support, we really have to work on solutions that are helping people right now. Uh, in a matter of months, uh, the city of San Diego identified locations. We constructed and opened three massive strung, sprung structures uh, to get folks off the streets immediately. We increased our shelter capacity by more than 800 beds for men, women, and children. We also opened up two storage centers to help people to get their freedom and their dignity back uh, and keep them from having to be preyed on by thieves and criminals out on the streets. Um, I will tell you that as I think all of us know that our clients will run the gamut. We will have homeless college students that are need help in storing maybe perhaps some of their belongings. We'll have employees who want to keep their work uniforms in our storage units. And we will have men and women who need to drop off their things before they go to a doctor's appointment. Um, people who would otherwise struggle to find a job, go to school or open access services without the stigma, of course, of being homeless. And so just as importantly, I think this really helps us to not only help people and individuals and belongings, but it helps keep our public spaces uh, free of tents and debris. <laughs> uh, I think we also recognized in San Diego that you have to intervene before people end up on the streets with those individuals who, unfortunately, their vehicle right now is a home of last resort. That's why we also established uh, over the last two years three safe parking lots for people that are unfortunately living out of their cars or RVs who are looking to try to get into that place of their own but haven't been able to make it work just quite yet. Um, those safe parking lots are working. Uh, they're working every single night. It's not just about a lot. It's about the wraparound services with the help and the support to get folks matched with that apartment of their own or to give them that safe access to some of the services um, that we need. Um, we have to get creative. We have to find faster ways to put a roof over somebody's head. And so I've worked very closely with our uh, apartment owners, rent uh, units, others with our homeless individuals, but also working that 
how can we reunite folks with their family? Um, everybody who's on the street has some family. And so we've really put a lot of effort here into San Diego to our family reunification program. And since 2012, that has helped more than 3,000 individuals reunite with their families um, to get them back on their feet, to get them back on their feet uh, for good. Um, and so I've really tried to create the system uh, where we have a shelter for folks to go. It's a clean and sanitary environment, that it has the wraparound services to help them with what they may be dealing with in terms of addiction or mental health, has the housing, housing navigators um, so they, we can match them with a resource right there in the shelter, again, with one goal. How do we get people off the streets, but not just for a week or for a month, but how do we get them off the streets for good and into that place of their own? And whether you're individuals, whether you're families, whether you're veterans, matching all of those help uh, and all of those resources um, together. Lockstep and part of that is really sending a very strong message that if we have these shelters, you have to use them and not allowing folks on tent encampments on the sidewalks of San Diego or in our canyons or in our river valleys um, and really insisting that folks use those shelters because as back to what I've said before, if you're suffering from mental illness or substance abuse, being out on the street is no solution. If you allow somebody to live on the street, you're going to condemn them to die on the street. I firmly believe that. And that's why we've had such an effort to get folks off the streets um, and into our, into our shelters. As part of that effort has been a focused effort in terms of our neighborhood policing division within the city of San Diego to respond in every single neighborhood. And every time we're out there and making encounters and making contacts, it's one goal. How can I get you into the shelter tonight? That's been a, a mind uh, shift, mindset change in San Diego in an approach, as I said, that we always want to help and get that offer for bed. And so that is incredibly uh, important um, because we also have to insist, whether you're mayor or you know, on the West Coast or East Coast, that you do not allow illegal and criminal activity, particularly when it comes to some of the drug use that's happening. Uh, and that is so, so much unfortunate of what we're seeing uh, in some of our population. That's why it's important to get those helps and to get those the services uh, in support. And so it's all about, we've tried to take very swift action uh, in the city of San Diego. It's about creating a clean, safe, and sanitary uh, environment, particularly as we're all uh, dealing with COVID-19. Uh, we have taken some very swift action uh, to prevent the spread in our homeless population. Uh, we started with placing hand washing stations and promoting good hygiene throughout the city. We've deployed nurses with outreach teams to distribute care packages and information, of course, on COVID-19. Uh, and I think the biggest game change that we did in San Diego is we established an emergency shelter, and we called it Operation Shelter to Home, at our San Diego Convention Center. Um, and it's really been a game changer. And we opened up our convention center because we're not having conventions, unfortunately, right now with COVID-19, but allowed us to have that space for more physical distancing more efficient staffing. So we took all of the folks that were in our bridge shelters that we stood up, brought them all to the convention center. It's more capacity. And now we're serving over 1,200 people each night, again, in a clean sanitary environment, doing COVID uh, testing for every single homeless individual. Um, and it's working. Uh, we've only had 20 positives out of more than 7,700 tests that we've conducted since April. It's all been asymptomatic because anybody with symptoms is uh, 
put into one of our, our hotel units. Um, and the main objectives when we set up this shelter was really how can we find the barriers that are preventing people from getting housed? And so we have our housing teams inside the convention center every single day, broken down those barriers, streamlined processes, and worked with our external partners and our providers with matching individuals with vouchers, with subsidies and programs, really to change how we house people. And I've said this is going to be an all-hands-on-deck effort, as we have not had some uh, city operations open. For example, some of our libraries and rec centers, we've moved some of these employees into the convention center to help with housing navigation. Uh, we have housed over 600 people in six months. And this was double the rate of housing efforts uh, before we moved everybody into the convention center. So back to what I said, maybe there's some silver linings in terms of COVID-19, uh, is to make sure that we were being as efficient as we could, we're using all the resources as we could, and we were really putting that spirit uh, and that momentum um, to get folks going. Uh, we have been very active and aggressive in terms of purchasing hotels. And I was really glad that Adrian uh, mentioned about that because that is a program uh, that is working. Uh, we just identified actually in the last several weeks, uh, two new virtually move-in ready properties uh, that the city of San Diego is gonna be purchasing. They'll house an additional 400 folks from our operation shelter to home at our convention center. Uh, and our goal is to have them open and hopefully available before Christmas. Um, so we've really made a lot of significant progress through this new operation shelter to home. And I'm doing a lot of speaking about it because I think it's really going to be a model for the future, certainly of our homeless system here in San Diego, um, while at the same time being able to help prevent the spread of the virus from taking hold in this incredibly vulnerable population, which are women and men on the streets. And so I would just say in, in the, the sum it up, um, I think we need smarter strategies to help folks uh, in the populations from sleeping outdoors, uh, people who need housing and people who need mental illness and substance abuse issues. You have to link all of those together. So we've really changed our approach pretty dramatically in San Diego over the last uh, four years. I think we're seeing some of those results as homelessness has decreased, continues to decrease. We've got a lot of work um, still to do. Um, but I think you, you have to you have to address it by getting real, as I said, about the problems, particularly head on on mental health and substance abuse. It is not acceptable to condone living outdoors in our cities. It's not humane to let people with severe mental illness to wander our streets, uh, and it's not responsible to turn a blind eye to drug abuse. It's going on, and so I think we have the ability within ourselves to continue to make a change in all of our urban cities in, in California, uh, to continue to move folks off the street, to clean up the unsafe homeless encampments that unfortunately has symbolized too much failure in the past. Um, and as I said before, it is not compassionate to let somebody live on the street because you will condemn them to die on the street. Kevin Faulkner is the mayor of San Diego. The U.S. federal government debt is unsustainable and still rapidly growing. 
Despite numerous congressional committees, bipartisan commissions, and votes, we are no closer to a solution to the debt crisis than we were more than a decade ago. In a new edited volume from the Cato Institute, A Fiscal Cliff, New Perspectives on the U.S. Federal Debt Crisis, scholars and policymakers explore the U.S. debt crisis from a public choice perspective and propose new fiscal rules and institutional changes to address the crisis. A Fiscal Cliff is available now at online retailers and Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.